On this episode of Of Mex and Men, Melissa gets her data stolen, Noten gets caught sleeping on the job, Hans and Quintus entertain a nosy baron, and Andy charges dinner to the prince's tab, but the archon designate puts him in check. This is Of Mechs and Men, a Battletech book club. I am Kanan Hill, joined, as usual, by my two good friends, Brent. It is me, Brent. And Aaron. It's me, Aaron. How are we doing, boys? Well, I'm feeling a fine vintage, as always. Well, that's good, because this week, we're cruising through chapters 33 through 39 of the book we've been working through. Warrior On Guard by Michael A. Stackpole. Let's get into it. Chapter 33. We open with the scene of Melissa booking her passage aboard the Silver Eagle. The chapter opens with her calling Meyer Star Travel. That's the company. It's actually a holophone, I think. So I, I imagine that there's like a little hologram of you. I never thought about this much, but they use like holographic technology a lot. They're talking to holograms a lot in Battletech in general. There's a lot of holograms. So that's cool. <laughs> It is true. But this is where they went really AR with it. (laughs) So she gets on the phone with this clerk and she tells her that she wants to book passage to New Avalon. And she says, well, it is currently April. And Melissa tells the clerk that she needs to be there by July or August. Right. I love this little exchange here, though, because Melissa's playing this character. She's trying to be Joanna Barker. So she's doing this whole innocent school teacher bit the whole time. It's like, oh, you know, I could never afford that on a teacher salary. Do you have anything more, <laughs> um, you know, affordable? You realize, though, she is working her. She's trying to get the clerk to suggest the Silver Eagle. She doesn't say that, but that is the ship that she needs to be on. The Silver Eagle being a Monarch-class ship. And the only reason I'm bringing it up, I'm not going to dive deep in it, but the first time I read this, I was like, oh, I just assumed it was another kind of egg-shaped dropship. It's actually an Aerodyne dropship. It looks kind of like an airplane, kind of. A futuristic airplane. I actually didn't look it up. That's good. That's why I felt like I wanted to bring it up, because it's not like a Union-class dropship or... Or Overlord. Or Overlord. That was the one I was trying to think of. Anyway, that was all. I just wanted to bring it to the reader's attention if they didn't pick up on it. That's cool. Yeah, it is. Exactly. The Silver Eagle is luxurious, right? The clerk pitches it as, oh, you know, we'll put you on the Silver Eagle. It's this recently refitted. It's going to be so nice. And right. This is where the clerk explains to her that this company, Monopole, owns the dropship, but... They're able to travel quickly because they jump around using independently owned jump ships. So they're doing that whole series where the Silver Eagle will pass through a series of jump ships, which allows them to jump faster than the usual recharge times would allow, right? They don't have to jump and wait and jump and wait. They can just, uh, they have a little, what do they call that? Like the command circuit 
Man circuit, yeah. I don't think it's quite as efficient. Yeah, it seems like there's probably some waiting because there's they do waiting. talk about being able to kind of like see the sights. And that's when Melissa asked the clerk something to the effect of, I can see all the sights and get there on time. And that's when we kind of get this explanation. Yeah, exactly. She's like, no, it's cool. We uh, hire all these jump ships. Also, she tells her that the Silver Eagle does leave in two days. So it'll be leaving very soon. And there's two packages. Okay. Luxury passage. That's going to be 20,000 kroner. All right. 20,000. But we're just a teacher. Can't really afford that. Check it out though. Private room. 8,500 kroner. You get a private room. Not bad. Yeah. Melissa, or uh, should I say Joanna Barker, accepts. (laughs) She's like, yeah, 8,500. I can swing it. So she's locked in. She bought the ticket. We're leaving in two days. Oh, then, okay, listen, this is where we get the section where it describes how all of Joanna Barker's personal data is processed by the computer system, right? You guys remember this. It is quite elaborate. Mr. Stackpole spares no details. (laughs) I mean, it's a beautiful passage of just... um, How computers work in a network? Yeah, it's just, it's so elaborate. And how data is aggregated. That's kind of the gist of it. It's pretty good. I was like, okay, he breaks it down. It's very Keith, though. Yeah. It is kind of out of Stackpole's nature a little bit, this little, like, description. It seems like he's just having a little fun. He had, he was having a good time. I feel like this section, the reason Stackpole has to go into so much detail is putting it into the perspective of this book was released in 88. So I could see how a lot of the tech behind this might be new to a lot of people reading this off the shelf and not understanding like, oh, this goes through all these networks. All this personal data was collected to give her the optimal trip conditions. But then it's also funneled in through all these different technical terms. So it kind of sells more of the groundedness of the tech that we now interact with on a day-to-day basis. That's a really good point. And I did want to point out, uh, now that you've brought it up, that actually for this day and age, this was very sci-fi. Now we're like, oh yeah, people in government steal your data all the time. You know, no big deal. (laughs) That's just, yeah. uh, Yeah. But, but we know that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But here it's actually like sci-fi. Yeah. Like we dip our toe into like neuromancer territory. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Where it's like, we got ram traps going on. Ram traps. Yes. So we get this whole section where she submits her data, all of her information into the monopole computer system. And the data travels through all these different checks. It shows that monopole is really on top of it, though. They take her profile. It accounts for her medical history, recent food purchases, allergies, religious taboos. They pull her grocery lists. Is kind of what it says. And it sends data to the pharmacy and the culinary division so they can have any medications she needs or they can prepare the proper foods, make sure she's not allergic to anything. It takes into account her height, weight, age. I like it uses like the physical characteristics to determine where to put her on the ship, right? They're like, oh, we got to balance it. I was like, oh, that makes sense. And it even takes into account like her interests, education, hobbies. They have like a dossier 
on there's so much data. Yeah, their computer, it even uses the information to select suitable dining partners. Like it makes a dining schedule when it seats people in the dining hall. It's like, yeah, we, we put people who are going to get along next to each other. He defines kind of a, a like what we would consider now like a computer algorithm, right? It's like there's this automation to all of the passengers' preferences that's done via computer. It Again, yeah. very sci-fi for its day and age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love, it says, it seemed that Joanna Barker was bland enough to fit well with anyone. Right? That's her whole thing. She's vanilla. She's like, I'm just some lady. Somewhere Simon smiling. Yeah, it yeah, it isn't hard to accommodate her though, because she's so plain. The computer does its usual check, make sure she has all the necessary inoculations and vaccines, and then, while double checking her medical history, something odd occurs. A duplicate of her profile is created and travels into a ram trap. <laughs> and uh, I love that. I read ram trap. I was like, yeah, yeah that's I cool. I did too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do. Oh, oh, I did want to point out. I do love the part where during her background check, it says the Lyran Intelligence Service keeps a copy of her profile and adds it to a list of possible candidates to act as a body double for Melissa Steiner. Isn't that so funny? <laughs> That's very Simon's funny. like still running his algorithm. He's still collecting candidates. He was probably doing it before Katrina even ordered the body double. It's true. Now you see he already had that list because he had already like written a program and had been scraping data from the travel agencies. Simon Johnson, right? I mean, come a on. A true professional. He's the best. He's the best. Lick really knows no bounds. <laughs> That's not true. Be because they don't have a man in Hans's court. There it's are true. bounds. They say, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to say Lick because I know it's upsetting. <laughs> so then we get the section where the computer attempts to discern the origin of her name. And I think at this point, this is like the profile that broke off, gets subjected to a further series of uh, checks. Yeah, they're searching for like her name. They're doing a name search, but not just like who she is. They already have all that. They're like, okay, what's the origin of this given name and surname? It's wild. It checks her whole family history. It's like, oh, did was there an Aunt Joanna or something? No. It checks uh, popular movie stars and musicians of the era. I love he wrote that the computer even considers that, no, oh, maybe this popular adult film actress is a possible candidate. <laughs> Her name's Johanna. It goes crazy. It's checking lists of famous people, politicians, athletes, historic figures, but it finds nothing that would explain like Joanna Barker. It's funny. It's, it's like, what's going on? What is this? But then it says that finally it checks a complete database of 18th, 19th, and 20th century fiction. And this is where it matches with Sweeney Todd. That's a lot of books, by the way. Like it says there's a complete... That's insane. <laughs> a lot of EPUB files filling that thing up. Yeah, that's a lot of EPUBs. <laughs> so we got the match. We're like, okay, it's determined that this name was probably taken from the book Sweeney Todd, which is true. They got her. Again, they should have let Simon choose the name. I said that. <laughs> they should have done what Simon says. <laughs> Simon says, yes. So at this point, another program pulls the entire passenger list for the Silver Eagle, and it takes 
all of the information that it has pulled so far and compiles it into a neat little report. And then we get a cut over to Duke Aldo Lestrade sitting at his computer, okay? And he gets a little ching, like he gets a little email, and we just see Duke Lestrade like sitting at his desk, stapling his fingers, reading this report. And okay, so now we see that Lestrade has built this elaborate series of programs and algorithms so that he can discern if Melissa leaves the Commonwealth under an alias. Is that's what's going on here, though? Is this all his doing? We're learning that Duke Aldo Lestrade is a psychopath. So there was something. Remember, he knew that something was going on. It's like true. months ago. So he must have known that Melissa would be the one traveling. That's what this implies because he's looking for Melissa. But I don't think he knows about the wedding, does he? Like That's almost no one does, right? It's it's very secret. Well, Comstar so, knows. So if Comstar knows, their oh, agents yeah. that need to know would know. Comstar knows. That's right. The book leaves it a little up in the air whether he knows precisely or not. Because in that section where he alludes to it, Lestrade says to himself, so the Archon designate is bound out of the Commonwealth. Having her kidnapped from a Davion world ought to put a stop to this alliance nonsense. So he didn't mention the wedding there, but he would know about the alliance being signed. The alliance. That was pretty common knowledge. Yes. It really does seem like Look, this whole thing has been, this is how he did it, okay? Duke Lestrade has discovered that Melissa will be traveling on the Silver Eagle. It's a plot point. This needed to happen. You know, I've come around, us sitting here talking about it here, my little, like, it seems like he's doing it for fun. You're right. Actually, I think this did need to happen. So that it didn't feel hand-waved. Yeah. So you know what? You guys are right. I was wrong. He had to earn it. That's right. So, of course, he forwards the report to Enrico Lestrade on Solaris 7, our boy Enrico. Another winner of the Lestrade family. And you're like, dang, he's got it. He's got the passenger list. He's got, and then you remember old Gray Noten's. Gray Noten is also, he's working on a job to intercept a jump ship. Exactly. And so as readers, we're like, oh... We're kind of watching as the threads of fate are being woven here. Exactly. It's all coming together. And that's it. That's that scene because the chapter's not over yet because this is where we jump over to the scene of Andrew Redburn and Misha Auburn having dinner together. Candlelight dinner, holding hands. I absolutely love this scene. It's so cute. It is. When the scene starts, it's like the server is like, cleaning the table he's like collecting the plates and they've just finished in there and they're like i just had such a good time it's great they go over and they sit on this little couch together there's a little couch and they're just sitting there and andrew tells her that he's really enjoyed being here with her and he he doesn't look forward to leaving he tells her that he didn't want to leave without letting her know how he feels and misha tells him that she's enjoyed their time together too it's very cute it's this very young version of being in love it's adorable. I, like, I truly do love it. It's so 
cute and innocent, but it really feels fitting for both of these characters. Yeah, Andy, he's so sincere. It's true. It's touching. They share a kiss, and the chapter ends with Misha telling Andy that all they can do is enjoy the time they have while they still can. I love the end here where she hits him with the, I know how you feel, Andrew Redburn, because I feel the same way. And I like that it's just, it's everything you needed to know. It's in this cute little package. I love it. I really do. I thought it was touching. It's it's this very like innocent romance. It's charming. Yeah, it's great. I love that Andy came to Tharkad and he met Misha, but now he has to go. It is. It's sad. Bittersweet. Breaks my heart. Bittersweet. But that's it. That's the chapter. We see what's happening here. They're about to leave. You know, we haven't left yet, but we're almost there. The ship's leaving. The Silver Eagle. It's time. We're leaving Tharkad. And we'll have to find out how the trip on the Silver Eagle sets off in the next chapter. Chapter 34. We open with the scene of Colonel Sortek seeing Andy off, right? They're at the spaceport. It's time to go. Andy goes over and talks to Misha for a moment, right? One parting goodbye. Misha and Andy are very sad. And that's it. Andy gets in the gantry. It says that. The mantry. (laughs) (laughs) So Andy goes up to his room. He checks it out. And when he gets up there, we see that it is very nice, right? Andy's in first class. He got the luxury tickets because he's a hero. This man, he saved some stingers, not all of them. (laughs) (laughs) But that's also part of the point. That's the point. Yeah, he's a hero. He is. He's the hero, and that means that the focus will be on him and not his companion. Exactly. So we're looking at luxury accommodations, okay? yeah. He has, like, look, I don't have to describe the decor. Stackpole does, by the way. He gives (laughs) us every table every chair it's great i see it it's very nice we got leather sofas leather chairs he has like a living room this isn't this isn't just his bedroom he has like a living room and then he also has like a separate bedroom it is kind of crazy that a ship would have this amount of accommodations right that's a lot of empty space on a ship where space is is a premium thing. It is in short, literal short supply. These are really, truly luxurious to have. It's like it's ballers. It's kind (laughs) of wild. It's so baller. I also think it's wild to us because this is travel way out of our league. So (laughs) I'm sure anywhere that you travel like in today, that has luxury accommodations would have similar uh, setups. I would say if we were going to give it to its modern day equivalent, it's like a cruise, right? Like sea travel, I think, is really the closest equivalent to space travel as far as the Battletech universe is concerned. And so like, a, there's luxury accommodations on cruises that take up more of the ship's volume, right? But they're more expensive. And then there's the like, yeah, the regular rooms. You, we're used to traveling in the rooms where you could put both your palms on the wall. So <laughs> <laughs> speaking of those. Oh, like Dell, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so nice. And oh, I do like it points out that all the walls and ceilings are softened 
with fabric, right? They're all soft. And I mean, Andy points out it's because if they lose gravity and people go floating off whatever couch they're on, they won't get hurt. And I thought that was cool. I was like, oh, of course. When the gravity comes back on specifically, right? Because the floating part isn't a problem. If anything, it's probably pretty cozy. I don't know. Not an astronaut. (laughs) But but when gravity comes back on at like 2 a.m., yeah, you want to make sure that the landing you have yeah. is in the bed and not on the floor. Slamming into the bulkhead. <laughs> right. God. Good point. We always lose about three to six passengers per trip to, yeah. Yeah. to head injuries. Oh, okay. I had to point this out. You know, we got the leather sofas, leather chairs, and then we have, it's like a rack of magazines, but they're hollow discs. Okay. <laughs> it's like magazines are hollow discs. And, and he's like, oh. Those are my favorite magazines. And he remembers that offhandedly, while talking to Simon, casually, he had mentioned some of his favorite magazines. And those are the ones that are in his suite. Simon remembered. Uh, Which is... He's the best. I feel like depending on what kind of person you are, that's either really cool or really creepy. Andy is scared, by the way, when he sees this. I would be too. It's it's terrifying. (laughs) It says, Andrew shuddered. That's one man I wouldn't want as an enemy. No, so scary. It also says he's got his own cleaner because, and I've pointed this out before, they don't say bathroom often. They say cleaner, (laughs) by the way. So Andy's got his own cleaner, liquor rack. We're in the bedroom now. He's got the canopy over the bed. He also, oh, this, this Andy points out, it's cool. It's got the old school canopy, but it's also there to keep you from floating away, right? Exactly. If, if like the gravity kicks off, it'll kind of catch you. You won't float too far away from your bed. Yeah. He's loving it, by the way. This whole scene is Andy walking around the suite like, heck yeah. Like, look at this. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, he's so into it. This little, this little part ends with him flopping on the couch and laughing. And he's just like, he thinks to himself like, yes, Colonel Sortek, I think I will enjoy this trip. (laughs) Oh, no, sorry. He doesn't think to himself. He says that out loud. (laughs) Out loud. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. So then we jump over to Melissa and her room is not as nice. (laughs) She's got wood paneling. Unfortunately, it is fake. Fake wood paneling, Everything's fake. Yeah. She's like, oh, she has a sofa. That does fold out into a bed manually. I see. That's that's where they're saving all the space so that the luxury rooms can have that second part. Yeah, she thinks it's funny. She's like, oh, it folds out manually. Great. <laughs> and not only that, she has to share her cleaner with the adjoining cabin. It's a shared cleaner. And well, she's got her little hollow screen. I meant to point out, Andy had a hollow screen. Andy had the big screen. Right, they put the 60 inch, she's got the 4K, and then we see <laughs> Melissa's just got the little... She's got the TV-VCR combo. The TV-VCR <laughs> combo, yes, yeah, she's got the little hollow screen. She says it reminds her of a barracks. She's like, oh God, it's just like what my soldiers sleep in. And we feel the ship starts to rumble, the ignition sequence begins, and Melissa immediately starts to cry. She's so upset. <laughs> But then she gets upset with herself. To her credit, she's like, what are you doing? Stop crying. What are we doing? 
Joanna Barker wouldn't be crying. It's like she's having that internal fight with herself again. But she's like, but I'm Melissa Steiner. I deserve better than this. <laughs> but then, of course, she's so conflicted. She's like, Joanna Barker's poor. And yeah. this would be nice to a poor person, I think. Exactly. She's like, this would be her big adventure. She'd be so hyped. She goes back on herself, though. She thinks deserve. Deserving means you've earned something. She chastises herself for being such a princess. This little part ends with her having this little internal conflict. It's good, though, that this happens. It does make her more likable, right? This could have easily been a, a scene where we're just like, oh, look at you being a princess. But, yeah. Yeah. but Melissa does it for us, which shows that she has introspection, which is a great trait in making someone likable. That's why I, I yeah, I wanted to give her some credit. Totally. Yeah, she is. She's pushing back on it. She's not letting herself have it. She doesn't allow herself to victimize herself. Exactly. I'm like, okay. Yeah, Stackpole really turns it around with that last line of, see how your people live. Endure the same indignities to spirit and body. Then, and only then, will you begin to deserve. Precisely. I respect it. I do too. I mean, even if those indignities are like fake wood paneling. (laughs) Also, remember, she's also just a kid. Right. Again, she's in her teens, right? Her late teens. She's so young. <laughs> it's true. She has a long way to go, but I think she'll get there. I think so, too. This scene really makes me go, I think Melissa's going to be all right. Every journey to self-betterment starts in a quality end. <laughs> <laughs> My experience, it just means you're going to get super glue all over your hands. Every journey to self-betterment. <laughs> <laughs> I would say... Also, several journeys have ended at Equality. (laughs) So then we cut over to the scene of Andy, and he's on the bridge. He's talking to the captain, Captain Stefan von Brunig. Andy is chatting with the the captain. He's so proud. He's showing him around. He's pointing out the map and stuff. That's the basic layout of the Silver Eagle. I like, he does point out that they ripped out cargo bays so they could add room for more passengers the whole thing's been like renovated basically the monopole they went crazy they took this old monarch and they were like let's make it real nice we're gonna tear out the walls we're gonna put in more stuff and the captain is very proud andy does point out though he's like i noticed that you only have a single dining facility It's not split by class. There's not a first class dining room and a general population dining room. It's just one dining room. And the captain tells him that, yeah, Monopole decided to do away with class distinctions. I think he even mentions, you know, poor people love it if they can catch a glimpse of a celebrity every now and then. (laughs) It's part of the experience. That we offer here on the Silver Eagle. Yeah. He tells Andy, though, he's like, we do have a private area for dining, if you would like. And this is Andy cuts him (laughs) off. He's like, no, 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 no. My boy, Andrew Redburn, he laughs. He's like, he gives him a a hearty chuckle. And he tells the captain, listen, if the government weren't paying my bills, I'd be down in gin pop myself. He goes into his pocket and he pulls out the humble card. And he's like, I'm going to play this. Thank you, sir. So Uh, smooth. Very smooth. He asked the captain why he would want to be stuck rubbing elbows with people who'd have nothing to do with him if he paid for his own ticket. Huh? Huh? (laughs) And uh, this, of course, endears him. The captain immediately, I love this. You see the captain smiles and like, yeah, like offers his hand again. And he's like, once again, Lieutenant, let me 
heartily welcome you aboard the Silver Eagle. It's great. <laughs> Everybody loves Andy. Right? <laughs> What's not the love? I, honestly, though, he's uh, he's great. He's very charming, even when he's got the spaghetti in his pockets. Yeah, he makes it work. Totally. This is a real short chapter, right? Like this, it's a. Uh, we really, it's just kind of to show off this juxtaposition between the two characters and how they're kind of dealing with opposite situations. Andy's the salt of the earth kind of guy who's been thrust into luxury uh, living for his stay for his stay on the Silver Eagle. And Melissa, obviously coming from wealth, <laughs> is getting to experience poverty here on the Silver Eagle. And it's kind of this little bit of, it's both like a joke, but also it seems like it's this great little tool that Stackpole uses for a little bit of character development out of both of these. Andy becomes a little more, it seems his like sociability is going up and Melissa is becoming more down to earth and um, resilient. Yeah. I, I like it. A little salt. A little yeah. salt. She's getting a little salt. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. A little seasoning. And both characters are equally out of their element in that experience. Totally. And when I read that, I was thinking this really sets both of them up to not be on their A game. They're both on the back foot through this experience. Oh, yes. Very good. Welcome to the Silver Eagle. <laughs> it's going to be a journey. And we'll have to see where this journey takes them in the next chapter. Chapter 35. So we open with Justin like slipping in through the window because this is the scene where Gray Noten is they're in like this kind of trashy apartment. I think they're in the Capellan district and Gray Noten is here. He's talking to this old Capellan man and he has a translator with him, right? But remember the chapter opens with Justin like walking up behind them and telling him he's lying, Gray. Because Justin knows Capellan. It's funny. Apparently, the translator is lying, right? Gray Noten is trying to get information out of this old man who doesn't speak English. But Justin is listening in, and he realizes that his translator is lying to him, which <laughs> is uh, very funny. And Justin tells him what the old man really said. The old man does remember the ammo shipment. This whole scene is... Gray Noten asking this old man about this weapons cache that apparently this old guy knows about. So, of course, Noten gets really mad about it. He grabs the translator and, like, throws him back in the chair, and the dude goes, like, falls on the floor. It's pretty funny. Oh, right, and he tells the guy, oh, so you're probably just going to come back and sell me the information later, huh? Right, <laughs> you were going to lie to me here and then sneak back in and be like, you know, I actually know what he said, if you pay me. So that is pretty scummy. So I'm glad Justin was here. Just in time. Yeah, he was He was just in time. So, yeah, they kicked that dude out, and Gray just asked Justin if he'll just act as the translator instead. So Gray tells the old man that he'll pay him 15000 if he'll tell him where his unit stashed the ammo, and another 15000 if the information is confirmed. So it must be pretty good, because, like, 30 k is, like, a lot of money actually. Well, and sp specifically he's offering him 
15,000 both times in C-bills. And we've seen other people's reaction to C-bills on Solaris, so... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's one coupler, right? (laughs) That's what I mean. I'm like, oh, man, this stuff, this must be pretty valuable. So we got this old Capellan man here. I like, it tells us that he's the last surviving veteran of an ill-fated Liao offensive against House Merrick half a century before. So they attacked House Merrick and they got wiped out. His whole unit got wiped out. Only he was left. That was a long time ago. Just third succession war things. <laughs> so he does, though. He tells Justin where the weapons are. He even tells him about the booby traps that they set. So that's good. Though he doesn't Nifty. pay him with cash. Noden pays the guy with one of those betting tickets. And, oh, you know what's funny? I, I think it says it's from Justin's fight with Billy Wolfson, the one where he stabbed the rifleman, right? He bet on Justin... <laughs> Yeah, he just gives him this betting ticket. That's pretty handy. He has pre-laundered money. Yes. I was yeah, thinking the same money. thing. Exactly. <laughs> and what I assume is money he didn't invest as heavily in since it's winning odds there. Precisely. Yeah, you just have to hope that you win. But Justin told him he would win. In this win. case, he did. Yeah. Yep. He said he said he would win. Or came that close before. <laughs> oh, I like the translator is like still there at this point he's just like being awkward but this is where justin turns to him yeah justin he turns to him and tells him like hey if anyone harasses the old man i'll come after you myself with yen lo wang and the dude's like oh okay and he like (laughs) runs off so oh there's some logistics there that doesn't really make sense but uh (laughs) it's the thought that counts (laughs) or in this case i guess the fear gray and justin (laughs) bow to the old man thank him for his time Oh, I like the old man says something in Capellan to Justin and leaves. They have a little exchange. And it's funny, after he leaves, Gray asks Justin what he said. Justin, he tells him, he's like, he told me to invite him back again whenever uh, you felt generous. (laughs) But I told him that large in the purse, not soft in the head. I'm like, that's pretty good. It is pretty good. Yeah. Large in the purse is not soft in the head. So with that little bit of business concluded, they uh, walk back to the typhoon. Oh, I like they walk up and there's a couple of these. It says two young Tongsmen are watching the car. Just these dudes posted up. And I like Gray goes to tip them. He like reaches in for some cash. And Justin's like, don't, don't do it. He says, don't give them any money. It'll only cheapen you in their eyes. They're doing it out of respect, right? They don't want your money. It makes you look cheap. And this is when Gray Noten is like, you know a lot about Capellan customs, actually. You're pretty good with this. And this is where Justin explains that he actually lived in the Capellan Confederation until he was five. And by that time, he already spoke both languages. He would even still visit his Capellan grandparents sometimes. So yeah, he is. And he was, and he was posted in the Capellan March for his whole career. So yeah, he does. It's true. Justin is very <laughs> knowledgeable about Capellan customs. Which is quite useful. I like we get this little exchange here where Gray is telling Justin about how, I'm sure you've guessed already, but I work as an information broker. He tells Justin that it's cool, but it's a tough job and it requires a lot of putting together deals and organizational skills, but he thinks that Justin would be good at it. Oh, and violence. (laughs) And violence. Violence And threats of violence. (laughs) 
Yeah, you got a minor in goonery. <laughs> yeah. To pull it yeah, off in this world. <laughs> he also, Gray tells Justin, he has ties to all of the uh, intelligence networks on planet. And uh, they're all here. The Combine, the Lyrans, the Fed Sons. It's very funny, though. He says, I think there's some Merrick guys, but, you know, the last contingent s- split itself during the last Civil War, killed itself off, which is very funny. There was a little mini, even the <laughs> intelligence group on Solaris, like, fought each other. And it- Just when you thought the Free World's League was going to stop being a meme for just a second. <laughs> it's so funny. I want that story. Like, what happened there? They weren't very safe, that's for sure. Safe is the name of the uh, spy organization, just in case anyone didn't get it. I thought it was so, it's so dumb that they're called safe. I mean, it's dumb. It's pretty cool. They all have, it has real backronym energy. There's no way like that happened organically. No, it's got camel written all over it. Yeah. So Gray tells Justin that I could really use someone with uh, your talents to coordinate matters for me. I'd like you to, to consider becoming my partner. And so, yeah, this is this whole exchange where Gray's trying to pitch him on kind of bringing him in to the business. And this is another typhoon scene, right? They're having this whole conversation, driving around the typhoon. And then we get this cool, he like pulls it into this underground garage and they like get out and Gray pulls out this key. There's like this nondescript door. Basically, he takes Justin to his office, right? We see Gray Noten has this office. It's like in a, it's like a small office in a larger like storage area kind of thing. Have you guys seen Better Call Saul? Because that's what I see. Oh, yeah. It's like Saul's starter desk <laughs> in the back of the nail salon. Yeah. Like, I don't know why. Yeah. It's just what I picture. This whole entire scene transpiring in this like small cubicle. It says it's almost like a storage it's like a bunch of filing cabinets. It's like some dusty yeah. kind of, but then in the back is like a little room and he's like, this is my office. So Justin asks Gray what he would want of him. What are we talking? What is it? What is it? I would kind of stuff I'd be doing. And first Gray upfront tells him, I wouldn't ask you to betray your father, but this is Justin gets real mad. And he's like, my father, what sort of father would put a whore in his own son's bed to spy on him? Huh? <laughs> Gray's like, good. Good. Use that. He's satisfied to hear Justin get all angry about it. So Gray does a little explaining about the nature of the business. He tells Justin that Merrick, Leal, and Carita will pay well for info concerning Steiner or Davian elements, but also Steiner and Davian will pay good money for information about themselves. And I thought that was funny. <laughs> It's just Justin getting like a crash course in information brokerage here. It's like, yeah, it's people like, pay, dude. You know who loves hot exclusives about Hal Steiner? Hal Steiner. <laughs> Hal Steiner. <laughs> oh, never change Loki in Heimdall. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is where he tells Justin about that dropship. Remember that job? He tells him about how back in January, Enrico gave him that job to divert that dropship. And we learned that less than a week ago, Gray got the itinerary. And of course, this is the information that the Duke Lestrade got from the monopole computers from the previous chapter. So now Gray has the information and he says his people, they're already in position. Justin is impressed. 
he says, oh, I can see what you mean about organization. You have a lot of stuff going on. And he, Justin asks him, what are you making a deal like this anyway? And uh, this is where Noten tells him about how he was paid with that wager ticket. But then Justin stole the Vindicator and won the fight and he lost all the money. Oof. Oh, and a great line. Gray Noten tells him, you cost me a great deal of money, Justin, but I'm not one to hold a grudge. <laughs> Justin smiled and lied at the same time. Neither am I. Both men are bad liars. Yeah, I'm like, both of these men are absolutely all about holding a grudge. <laughs> it's really just what's been going on here. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's their whole friendship is based off it's of their the whole grudges thing. they hold. Yeah, you guys love grudges. Yeah. <laughs> so, who, you know, who doesn't? So, Gray tells Justin about his plan to disseminate this passenger list and start a bidding war. Okay, because Gray brings up the point that Enrico included the passenger list. He's even like, it's kind of dumb. He didn't have to do this. If I was him, <laughs> I wouldn't have done this. He like attached the passenger list that actually isn't pertinent to my part of the job. He just forwarded the whole like file over to me. He <laughs> Honestly, he's like, it's kind of dumb. I don't even need this, but it is valuable. It's a passenger list. So yep. uh, I'm going to sell it. Gray's like, well, it offsets the loss that you've cost me, Justin. So luckily, Lestrade's not very good at anything. It certainly likely won't complicate anything in the future either. So he hands Justin the folder, right? And Justin's reading the list and he sees the name Lieutenant Andrew Redburn on it. Like, oh, Andy's on this ship. And the passenger list is valuable because a lot of these people especially the rich people, could be worth some serious ransom, right? You capture this dropship, you have all these people. They're worth money. So, and I was like, man, that's a good point. He really shouldn't have given him the passenger list. However, it is sad to see our boy Justin looking at Andrew like a piece of political prisoner meat. See, as I was going through it. this, I saw it as this whole scene is both of these men lying to each other all the way through. Because... Justin knows about Gray. Gray feels that Justin knows about him as well. So this is just camaraderie, but it's all false. There's just no so fake. They're they're both sitting here pretending like we've got this future together. Yeah, and so they're it's both true. just playing parts. I wonder. Do you think Gray is more like? Do you think that this could actually work? I also wonder if Gray maybe is a little bit more genuine than Justin here. Good question. Not that he's. Not lying to Justin, but I like what you were saying, Ganon. Maybe he does think that there's a future here. That's what I spent most of my time thinking about on this chapter was Justin's angle in this chapter makes sense. But Gray's still is so tangled up of why is he continuing everything instead of maybe working on distance or trying to start working Justin from a different angle to make him more vulnerable. But it seems here like his first reaction to this post the coming out of Valhalla Club and Justin staring through the windshield the whole time and him feeling it out is, hey, have you ever thought about like getting in touch with all the intelligence networks locally? That might be something that helps you out in your future career. That's one of those lies that maybe is like, oh, you could do that, even though he knows well and good he is not going to directly communicate with the House Davion or the Lyran spies 
I think it was a bluff. Well, those, yeah, that makes sense. But if he gets in contact with the Capellan people, he could easily find out about Gray Noten. Sure. Maybe Gray just... It's a good question. Maybe he just thinks Justin is really cool and he wants to be friends. And he's sad. He's real sad that he shot him <laughs> with that rifleman. He wished he didn't happen. But maybe fate brought these two men together and they can settle their differences and just become good buds. <laughs> Star-crossed lovers, if I've ever seen them. Maybe. I noticed that Justin, in the beginning of this chapter, it says Justin comes in the window and he's wearing like a green olive jacket and in my head it was like oh it's like gray's jacket i like to think he started dressing a little bit more like gray noten they're becoming good friends that'd be nice so this is where gray tells justin that sin shang will be here in about an hour he's on his way he says you'll probably offer 10 grand i'll get him up to 25 no big deal so what do you think we partners huh huh i love this the chapter just ends with it says Justin smiled and gave Noten his good hand. Till death do us part. <laughs> and this is cool. We get a little Justin Gray chapter. Just these two men bonding. Just having a good time. A little goonery. A little yeah. thuggery. Just doing goon stuff. <laughs> He's falling in with the tough crowd. The Gray Notens of the world. These guys could do a lot of damage if they work together, though. This would be a heck of a, a duo, though. Like, they could for real get some stuff done. Which is, I think, the reason Gray Noten wants to keep Justin close is that, let's be honest, Justin's one of the most competent men we've seen on Solaris thus far. Maybe even outshining Noten. He's a good man for the job. And I think Noten thinks he's a little bit more clever. Well, we know for a fact, as the audience, Grey Noten thinks he's more clever than he actually is. And when I was talking earlier about, I spent a lot of my time trying to think about Grey Noten's angle... The only thing I could think of was that Gray Noten knows the game is up. He knows Justin knows. But when I went back and reread the chapter from that angle... Does he, though? It felt like maybe he's doing all of this to keep up a front for Justin. Saying like, oh, Justin might be more vulnerable to this if he thinks I'm completely in the dark. See, I don't think Noten does think the gig is up, actually. I think Noten still thinks... All of his bluffing in the car on that rainy day worked. Oh, really? Maybe. He's pretty smart, though. He has to have some inclination that Justin's- I'm sure he's yeah. deathly terrified, but I still think there's some ignorance here. I think Noten really does think he's pulled it off. It's the only thing that makes sense to me, contextually with all this. Because now that you say this, Aaron, you're right. If Grey Noten did know, it would make way more sense for him to try and find ways to distance himself or get rid of Justin. Yeah, that's true, right? He could just shoot him when they're hanging out. It is dicey. It's like, Grey, what are you doing? Like, what do, what do you think? Anyway, we know where this is going. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that Stackpole kind of keeps us up in the air, though. With everything being laid out... It does remove some of those points where we get to have those kind of discussions of, does Gray know, or does he think he's in the clear? I think that comes down to a lot of these things that makes it fun to go through these books with someone else. I agree. The doubt makes it more interesting, right? The doubt that's placed on whether he knows or yeah. not. So the boys are hanging out. They got the list. Sin Shang is on the way. We're going to try to take his money. We're partners. They shook on it. So uh, yeah, it's going to be great. Very excited for the continuing adventures of Gray and Justin. 
They're such good friends now. I'm sure it'll be a long and prosperous relationship. Well, whichever way it works out, we'll just have to see where the ripples reach from these two's friendship in the next chapter. Chapter 36. We open with the scene of Quintus Allard walking into Hans Davian's office. Yes, we get another Hans Davian office scene. I love these. And the prince is in here hanging out with this guy, Baron Robert Gruzot. <laughs> I like Quintus is like, oh, I didn't know who's this guy. And the prince tells him that, oh, uh, Baron Gruzot here, uh, he's been sent by Duke Michael to ensure closer coordination of efforts between our realms. And this dude looks terrible, by the way. He's so greasy. It's hard <laughs> to look at him, right? The text is not very kind to him. <laughs> Pretty much everyone's like, we hate being around this guy. They hate him. The Baron, his hand free of social duties, picked his teeth. Pleased to meet you, Quintus. <laughs> I've heard so much about you. Oh, I like, he says... Made sure I uh, got my flu shots before I left home, which I thought was funny. Because remember, <laughs> that's how Quintus held up all those dudes for a week with like inoculations or whatever. The first time <laughs> that Duke Michael sent his goons, Quintus managed to like quarantine them because he like, they haven't had their shots. <laughs> so like when this guy came, he was like, I got my shot. I love all these nobility scenes because yeah. they never <laughs> skip a chance to dunk on each other it's just like it doesn't matter if it's an appropriate time or not or if this guy's obviously disliked by these two he's just like hey look I can't ever say anything because yeah. that would be uncouth right it would cause it they just have to dance around it might start a civil yeah. war yeah they just have yeah. to dance around everything all the time just plausible deniability at all yeah. costs so Quintus is here, and Quintus, he has a disc with him, a hollow disc. He's got a little DVD, and he's like, okay, listen, Hans, you got to check this out. You know, I feel like he, he like goes over to the, little, the DVD player, you know, and like, meh, like puts it in the tray. He's like, listen, the playback unit, it's called. He puts the hollow disc in the playback unit, and oh, I like, this is where the Baron is like, oh, should I, uh, is this, should I go? And Hans is like, no, no, please. <laughs> These two are laying it on thick. Yeah. They're like, we have no secrets. <laughs> we want Michael to know all of our comings and goings on here at the capital of New Avalon. Yeah, right away I'm like, oh, is this a bit? Is this a whole work just for this guy's... <laughs> is that what's going it on here? It feels like it. I mean, Hans Davion even leads up to it with saying, how bad is it, Quintus? It, to me, this scene in my head is flavored very comically with Quintus and Hans Davion kind of overacting yeah. for the Baron. Yeah. And Stackpole doesn't do this guy any justice to see like he'd be picking up on it or anything. Like I could just imagine at this point when he throws out like, oh, should I be leaving? And they're like, no, we don't have any secrets. And he's like, oh yeah, I got him. Like I'm, yeah. I get to stay in here. I get the secret stuff. I like that. <laughs> it makes him like move chairs. I think at least that's how I saw it. It's, and it says, the Baron seated himself like an obedient child. So we start playing this hollow disc, and we see Quintus has brought a recording of that interview 
that Justin did after his fight with Billy. Remember, we didn't get to see it. It like jump cut to after the interview. And we're like, oh, okay. And then I forgot about this. I was I, I got excited. I was like, oh yeah, we actually do get to see the interview here. We get to see what Justin said. And so we get this shot of Justin and he's answering the interviewer's questions. And I love, Justin says, what do I think of my opponents? I think Billy Wolfson is a prime specimen of the caliber of all Federats. He was a short-sighted bigot who assumed naturally that his racial stock was superior to my mixed blood. And yeah, he's just going off on him. Oh, and then I like the interviewer asks him, what about the Fed son's dominance of the fights here, especially in the open class? And Justin's like, I know what you really mean. You mean to ask me, what do I think of Philip Capet? And then he does, I love like the wrestling promo <laughs> angle on this. I feel like he's pointing at the camera like, I'll tell you, Philip Capet is a perfect day for Prince Hans Davion. Davion is a coward who sends surrogates to do what he is not man enough to do himself. <laughs> I saw the exact same thing. I saw like the classic like blue curtain behind him and mean Gene Okerman yeah. standing right beside yeah. him. Yeah, like I could exactly. not get it out of my head the whole time I heard yeah. him saying it. He's just going off, like pointing. He's he's talking so much <laughs> trash about Davion. He's like, he calls him a coward. He's like, he plans campaigns to kill valiant men and then forgets about them. He even, he's like going off. That's how Capet killed both Billy Wolfson and Peter Armstrong. He taught them what he believed it is to be a man, but he did not remind them that the rules are different when they faced off with me. And the interviewer was like, what do you mean, Justin? <laughs> <laughs> Justin's right, though, here where he talks about publicly, he tells the guy that Capet told his guys not to use their ejection seats. And he says, yeah, yeah he taught earnest young soldiers and it got them killed in war. He basically blames their deaths on Capet. And like you said, he's not wrong. Well, and to pull it back to originally when Justin called Billy Wolfson out and said, don't believe what Capet's told you about being a man. And then to have it backed up here specifically saying that Capet has them fight without enabling their ejection seat. So it's not just telling them not to use it. It's telling them to go in without the ability to use it. Yeah. Yes. Capet and his master Hans Davion are fearful men hiding behind anyone who will execute their orders and the consequences be damned. Quintus hit a button and the screen went black. So that's it. That's what Justin said. And we learn that Hans and Quintus talk about how Justin has killed six pilots now, all from the Federated Sons. And oh, this is also where Quintus tells him that according to a report from his agent, on Solaris, we have learned that Gray Noten was the pilot who wounded Justin. Oh, I did. Hold on. I wanted to point out when Quintus tells him Justin's killed six pilots and Hans is like six pilots now. Ben Quintus tells him all from the Fed sons, but they were scum. It's good that we got <laughs> rid of them. But then it says Gruzot waggled his finger and perched himself on the edge of his seat. But they were our nationals, Quintus. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like Quintus looks irritated, just like, why is he talking? And then Hans like jumps in. They're laying on some good top bad cop here, though. Hans is like, it's, I fear Baron Gruzot is correct. 
we cannot have our nationals murdered just because they are from the Federated Sons. Could we have one of our agents terminate him? Yeah, he he like defends. <laughs> I love. I did like this little exchange where Gruzot like chastises Allard, and then Hans like backs him up. It's true. They're they're clearly doing a little act. They have this whole little act they're doing, and uh, I love it. They're perfect. It's it's literally like, well, is there a man we can get to kill Justin Allard? And Quintus is like, unfortunately, no. We don't have that capacity because he has moved into the Capellan Quarter. <laughs> Everybody and knows how- once somebody moves into the Capellan Quarter, there's no way an assassin could ever get to them there. It's impossible. <laughs> it's so suspicious, yeah. this dog and pony show. Like, what's going on here? Yeah, they could. We know for a fact that if Quintus w- snapped his fingers, he could have goons after him. Yeah. It seems like one of those things the Baron gets to think about, like, on the jump back home, where he's like, wait a minute, there's tons of assassins in the Capellan district. Yeah. <laughs> we can get, like, I anyone. that'd be that hard. <laughs> just as just walking around the streets, I don't know, listen, if you're the Prince Davion, and someone's, <laughs> you could have most people killed. Yeah, I, you know, I'm just saying. Yeah, it is. I mean, we did just cut from a scene where people are guarding the typhoon. Because it's just parked in the street. It's not like Solaris is like this deeply untouchable region for crime. So I assume a yeah, couple sea bills and a hot meal's enough to get Justin off the streets for him. They were just in the hood. It's yeah. like, but sir, Justin moved to the hood. It's like we can't reach him. Here. It's like you totally could. Brent, I think it, you make such a good point by pointing out like how absurd that is. With with those statements in front of the Baron, that it really directs the reader to say like, oh, this is a show that's going on. This is as true as Justin's promo that he just cut. Yeah, nobody's being honest <laughs> at all. In a throne room? <laughs> I love it. So, yeah, this is where Quintus tells Hans that uh, according to the report, they learned that Grey Noten was the pilot who wounded Justin. And he's talking about the report they got from Kim. And I love Hans pipes up and he's like, oh, uh, I always thought an urban mech was a poor choice to ambush a stinger company. (laughs) (laughs) I like Gruzat nods along. He's like, my sentiments exactly, your highness. What's going on? (laughs) Man, Michael is not sending his best. No, no. I I can't imagine the sheer amount of winks that like Quintus and Hans are giving each other throughout this. Like every time they turn away from the Baron. Yeah. Oh yeah. Quintus tells Hans that he had uh analysts run a check on gray Noten and he's confirmed to be off Solaris in that window. And he's known for using a rifleman. And on several occasions, he battled groups of stingers using the tactic exactly as Justin described. So he wow. has been like cutting down like whole companies of stingers by himself using the arm flip. Like, can you just imagine like a <laughs> legend whole, killer, yeah, a whole lance of more st- like stinger killer, you know, a whole lance of stingers <laughs> trying to come up behind him. And he just flips the arms and like lasers down, like <laughs> a whole lance of stingers. <laughs> That's what I saw. It's just stinger bowling in a rifleman. Yeah. Oh, stinger bowling. It is different when the pins move. 
<laughs> well, so far we haven't seen him amount up to much more than just target practice. So, oh, so all of a sudden, you, you know, we get this thing where Hans tells Quintus, "Oh, well, recall your son. Get Justin back here. I'll pardon him. It'll be great." Oh, and I do like. Isn't this where he's like? You know, we'll bring Justin back, give him a pardon, and then I'll break Count Vitios. And Gruzat looks like <laughs> concerned for a moment, like, not my boy. He's, <laughs> it's, it's, he's, he's like, oh, but uh, Quintus tells the prince that, uh, unfortunately, Justin's not coming back. He's not going to return. And he's like, come on, it's not happening. And also, this is where he tells him about how his agent, by the way, was ambushed. And he talks about how Noten exposed her and she was not killed. It says that she hasn't been killed, but uh, she she was going to tell Justin what Gray had done. But uh, Justin cut her off. It didn't work out. She didn't get it out. They beat her up. Oh, I like when he says, oh, Justin cut her off with the slap. Quintus holds up his left hand to demonstrate. And the prince like winces, he like sucks in air like it's like. Ooh, not the left hand. But Quintus also tells him, Justin actually sent us a message through her. Because you remember he did. That was the last thing he said to her. The whole, you've driven me from you, but you seek to maintain your hold on me. That whole thing. You called me your friend, but now you know me to be your enemy. So upon hearing this, this Hans gets so mad. He does the whole thing. He slams his palms into the desk. Damn his insolence. This is where he asks... Quintus, do we have agents in place to kill him? And Quintus is like, no, he's moved into Cathay. We can't get him there. And Hans is like, <laughs> all right, well, that settles it. Hans asks who he's going to fight next. And Quintus tells him that Justin wants to fight Philip, but Philip probably won't accept. He doesn't have to. Oh, and of course, this is where Hans tells Quintus to send a message, a message to Philip Capet. And Hans says that Philip can deliver him the head, Justin Xiang. He will buy him his own regiment and give him a world. Which, that's crazy. That's so much. That is a big grant. <laughs> that's insane. I, it almost feels like he doesn't believe in Capet no by granting that. <laughs> this is a huge But I do want to say, this, this text right here, this is kind of what led me to believe when we were talking about Spanner in the works. This is what led me to say, like... Sure, Capet was like, this is straight from Hans Davy on himself. This little text here is the reason that I was like, sure, Capet, sure. Because this makes it seem like this is the first time they're going to communicate. Yes. Yeah. Just, just the flavor. There's not anything specifically here. It doesn't say this is the first time we're communicating with Capet. But there's so much c coloring to this with like... Capet is not a total fool, and he'll likely leap at a chance to fight Justin. There's a lot of stuff here that makes it seem like they're, this is the first time he's being contacted by Hans. <laughs> well, I like when he passes this order, though. He does ask Quintus. He looks at Quintus like, I'm sorry, bud. Though, I'm especially, I'm sorry to pass the order through you specifically. I know Justin is your son. But Quintus, once again, ever loyal, tells his prince, As you said that day, I no longer have a son named Justin. And Ice cold. he's like, it's fine. It's cool. It's fine. And oh, also, Hans tells Quintus to recall the agent, Kim Sorensen, because uh, he has another duty for her to perform. He's got another job for her. That's what he says. He tells her to bring her home. Quintus tells Hans that there is some good news, however, 
the Silver Eagle left Tharkad, and it should get to Fed Sun space uh, on or about the 20th, and it is expected to arrive on New Avalon by uh, about the middle of June. And Hans is very excited about this. Gruzot, of course, he asks Hans, he's like, why are we so interested in a commercial liner? And Hans is like, oh, come on. Andrew Redburn is is on that ship. Don't you know? That's the Capellan March's newest hero. Certainly, you know, Andrew Redburn. Hans is very excited, though. And the just chapter ends with him being like, this is welcome news. And uh, it does indeed balance the bad because uh, Hans knows that Melissa's on her way. He's very excited. To back up real quick, I do like how Gruzot responds to the didn't you know Tenet Andrew Redburn is returning with... Well, so many duties. So busy. Doing nothing. <laughs> so that's it. It's this big old dog and pony show. They're doing this thing to Gruzot to kind of be like, oh, this is what's going on at New Avalon. Go tell your masters, is what it seems. Yeah, they're still so Maybe mad not, about Justin. You know. They got that message. They're just so mad about it. Hans Davian told him that he was going to kill him. And he promised all this stuff? Exactly. It does feel like they're putting on a bit of a show for Michael. Basically, Michael is going to get a message that says, your plan is working, sir. And that seems to be kind of the point of this chapter. Yes. Yeah. And it pairs well with Hans's actions during the trial and everything leading up to it. It really shows you that Hans and his dream team he's put together of Quintus and Arden are really good at playing these games. And they understand that Michael, through position alone, is a threat. But there's this confidence in this scene that tells you they don't necessarily respect him as a threat. They have this confidence in his incompetence. Yes. yes, that does appear to be what is at play here. And <laughs> this is something, as I read this scene, it's such a huge credit to Stackpole to set up these teams and the way they're functioning, Justin being the man caught in between, but then paralleling the actions of Michael and his cabinet to the Capellan March Mafia. On Solaris, we're seeing that these factions working against Hans's plan aren't firing on all cylinders. We get this picture of this. It's not cheap. We get to see the chessboard in play. We're not getting this line like, oh, the people at this level are playing like chess with people. Stackpole isn't telling us that. He's showing mm -hmm. it. He's showing us the political machinations, and he does it very yeah. well. Yeah. He's the best. The Fox. Yeah. Another great Hans Davian office scene. I love these. Some of my favorites. I love any time we get to check in on Hans. I always have a good time. They're always fun. So far, every time we've seen Nobility and Stackpole, as I said earlier, the dialogue is just so much fun to read through. Oh, yeah. Especially anytime there's a party of any sort. I get so excited. <laughs> so Silver Eagle is coming in, though. It'll be here uh, any day now. We know Andrew's on that ship. Not just any day. The 20th, the 20th of June. Estimated. The the Ides of June, if you will. It's going to be great. I'm sure that uh, they're going to have a safe trip and uh, nothing's going to go wrong. Another happy landing. And we'll have to check in just how that trip's going in the next chapter. 
chapter 37. We open with a dinner scene. This is the dinner scene on the Silver Eagle. I love this chapter. We see Andrew Redburn and Joanna Barker are having dinner with uh, Hoftman Eric Mahler and his wife, Hilda. He's specifically a retired captain. He's retired. He is. It does say that. And yeah, ju- and true to his word, Andy is down here just eating with the normal folks. He even says, I think it, it doesn't Eric tell him, oh, I could hardly believe you'd be dining with the Untermensch. He drops a little German on him. <laughs> um, it's funny because I don't feel like anyone needs that translated. It's like, it's one of those English words that in within context, it's like, oh, we get it. If these Untermensches could get it, you can too. <laughs> oh, I love it though, man. Andy kills it. He just like, when Eric says that, he just looks at him. And he says, no mech warrior uh, could resist the charms of your wife and uh, (laughs) Joanna here. You know what I mean? Our boy has come a long way from losing his spaghetti out of his pocket. He's getting better at this. I mean, the cojones on him. Yeah. (laughs) You must know well from your own days in the harness. That's what he says. He he talks. It is. Yeah, he asked him about his days in the harness. I'm like, heck yeah. He's inherited Arden's finger gun holsters at this point. He's ready to pop them out at any time. <laughs> yeah. Hey, he's getting some stubble. He's getting a little more surly. This is what happens when you hang out with Arden Sortec. <laughs> this- <laughs> the Sortecification process, if you will. Oh, the Sortec Vortex. <laughs> oh, I love when Andy orders two bottles of wine. He tells him to charge it to the prince. You know, he's like, put it on uh, put it on Han's tab. And I love this, all right? This is where Joanna, who's actually Melissa, shoots him like a side eye. And she's like, oh, generous with your uh, leader's money, aren't you? We got a top tier line coming up, by the way. This is incredible. I, I just wanted to read it. This is, uh, yeah, Joanna, she goes, oh, a little generous with your leader's money, aren't you? says, Andrew unfolded his cloth napkin and spread it over his lap. <laughs> Indeed, Joanna, did you not know that Prince Han Davion is a confirmed bachelor with no wife to spend all the Davion money for him? <clears throat> he coughs into his hand. He's like, <clears throat> Besides, the prince shares mech technology with the Lyran Commonwealth. Uh, could he fault me for sharing wine? He's on one. <laughs> I love the little cough into the fist halfway through. Yes. Like the, <clears throat> like, it's, as he's like spreading the napkin. Oh, man. Luxury life Andrew is peak Andrew. He's feeling great. <laughs> you know, yeah, he's like the, throwing that put it on Hans's tab like every time. He's like pulling a yeah. water bottle out of the very expensive mini fridge on that boat. He's like, put it on Hans's tab. Yeah. Charge it to <laughs> the prince. It's also great because we're probably getting a bit of maybe Melissa at her yep. worst. <laughs> so. Yeah. So he orders this wine, this expensive wine. And like Hilda says, she appreciates the gesture. She thinks, as do most Lyran people, that the accords that have been signed by both leaders are a good thing, a prosperous future for both nations. This is when, when Andy mentions Hans Davion. They're like, we like Hans Davion. He's cool. <laughs> we think that this is a good thing. So that's nice. As in, But she does indicate, I mean, she's just a Lyran citizen. And apparently she says that the temperature of the water is, uh, most people are chill with it. 
They like the way things are going. So that's good to know. I love the steward brings the wine and Andrew declares the vintage to be excellent. And I just, it seems like our boy's been, been in his leisure time reading some etiquette books. Andy has no idea. He knows nothing about wine. (laughs) Right? And like, yeah, the waiter comes up and like Andy looks at the bottle. I feel like he doesn't do the proper. He doesn't pour and like smell it. He just like holds it up and he's like an excellent vintage. Now, <laughs> now Brent, when this scene did come up, I only saw you in this moment. I was like, I this know, is exactly what Brent would do. Somebody come and hand him I'm the bottle be and he'd be like, you. this is good stuff. And I was like, Brent, that's three fifty dollars at the man. dollar store. Let's be honest, Andrew Redburn and me have have quite a few treats in common. <laughs> That's true. If we put you up in a nice hotel room for a night, you'd be ready to put out a nice podcast that next day. <laughs> I'd be a disaster. <laughs> I do also think that this couple is like the scariest people that you go and have a random dinner with where they're like, hey, nice to meet you. You want to talk politics now? And you're like, uh-oh. I do feel like it was like kind of an invite that he felt he couldn't refuse. They like passed in the halls and was like, oh, Mr. Redburn, I'm so-and-so. We're about to go to the dining room. Would you like to join us? And Andy's like, uh. Actually, they were pre-selected. Remember? Oh. Yes, they were on the schedule. Even more interesting. Scheduled. Yeah. Ah. That's how they do it. That's how monopole rolls. They like pre-schedule your dining partners. That's what that lady said. This is all terrifying. I would hate this. <laughs> <laughs> a fine vintage indeed. <laughs> so <laughs> it's the best high C money can buy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, of course, everyone's having a good time. But then of course, Eric Mahler has to bring up Justin. He asks Andy, you know, what do you think about Justin? What about Justin Jiang? And of course, Andy, just being a total bro. He just says like, oh, Justin? Oh, he was my commander. I liked him very much. He's a cool guy. And Eric's like, okay, but isn't he a traitor? And Andy tells him he doesn't think so. He says, no, I don't think so. That trial wasn't fair. I was there. It was a sham. That didn't. No, he's not. Andy's still, he's still out here, like riding for Justin, right? (laughs) This is so cool. Which is a little sad considering... What we just learned, Justin is like, oh, Justin literally responded to the reading of his name as, oh, he would make a fine ransom. Yeah, that is what he appeared. Yes, yes. It is sad. You're right. It does juxtapose. It looks like Justin's ready to sell him out. But Andy is out here straight defending him in this dining room on this spaceship. Just like he was a good man. And everyone's like, dude, we've we've seen the footage. Like he's not, (laughs) though. He's like, we, we we all saw the interview. He was like pointing and yelling. But Andy still maintains that that trial was not fair. Justin was innocent. And right, this is Eric. Of, he brings it up. He asks him about his unhinged tirades on Solaris. He's like, what about all that stuff where he's yelling about the Davions and stuff? And this is where Andy, uh, he goes on this whole thing where he tells him that he understands Justin's anger, though. Well, I like first Andy says, you know, can't you guys understand how like a real mech warrior would hate those fake warriors on the game world? Uh, those guys are <laughs> posers, right? Justin's the real deal. Of course he hates those guys. Stackpole's also, with that text you just read, he 
prefaces it with Andy carefully folded his napkin and set it down on the table. Yes. Almost to say that Andrew has kept his composure throughout this, despite the fact that he's like defending Justin, he's not putting uh, the Hauptman on blast. He's he's keeping it civil. There's having a conversation. I do like when he says that stuff about the Mech Warriors. This is where Joanna, Melissa, should I say, jumps in <laughs> and she tells Andy, Andy, we weren't talking about his skill. That's not the issue here. And yeah, she jumps in. She brings up the ending of the trial. She's like, well, remember where Hans came in and he did that whole thing and he offered Justin his life back and said he was going to pardon him. And then Justin freaked out and he refused. This is where Andy starts getting mad, though. Notice exactly. I wanted to point that out. This is where Andrew's line is crossed right here. Yeah, Andrew's nostrils flared. Excuse me, Miss Parker, but I would not expect you, a teacher, to understand what it is to be a, a mech warrior. This is kind of trashy because Andy knows she's not a teacher, though. Yes. Well, the he, the other thing that I took from that is Andy went straight for the throat there. Because the teacher yeah, remark, yes. I think you can discard as, oh, we're keeping up the story. But he does know that Melissa's very self-conscious and about the fact that she is not a mech warrior like her mother. She has that whole conversation with him here. Right. And yes. he just immediately goes for that exposed nerve on her. Yeah. I'm going to ding him on this one. Andy, this was, this was over the line. What are you doing? He's getting hot. He's getting too heated. <laughs> oh, man. I'm actually in his court here. I think Andy's being real here, obviously. His anger is genuine. And his reaction to Melissa is in kind to that reality. She's not a mech warrior. And that's the point here. That's what Andy's trying to say. And uh, I agree with him. And could he have done it better? Absolutely. Did he plunge a little too deep? Maybe. But I do think his reaction is reasonable. And I would be inclined to agree with you, except for the fact that Melissa did confide in him that. That specifically one of the things she doubts about her leadership is that she isn't a mech warrior. And he then followed it up with, I want to help you be a better leader with what advice I can give. And then turning that back is kind of, to me, almost like a betrayal of that confidence in yeah. public. If it was one-on-one, -on -one, it'd be a little bit different. But that's the thing is that in this argument, she turned his back on, well, the way Andy sees it is Melissa turned her back on Andrew first because of what she said about Justin. That's what he's reacting to. Oh, and this is, he doesn't stop though. He turns back to Eric and this is where he's asking him about how, how would you feel about being a desk jockey for the rest of your career? How would you feel to be known as the one that Hans Davian saved from justice, right? You would have to live with the shame. Everyone would know, oh, this is the guy that Hans had to come in and save. You'd be plagued by doubt forever. It would be tough. There'd be a shadow following you everywhere you went. You can tell he's thought about this a lot, though. He has some big feelings about what happened with Justin. How could he not? That's his boy. Some time has passed, but he really never got any closure there. He was wisp away from Justin. I agree completely. 
And he's trying to reconcile what Justin's doing with the Justin he knows. And it doesn't make any sense to him. And so I think at the end of the day, Andrew's trusting his beliefs, like, like, like what he knows over the events that are transpired, especially after the court case, right? After the dog and pony show that was the court case, why would he believe that Justin's now getting fair coverage? I wouldn't in his position. Like I said, I think his anger's justified from his position, right? It makes sense that our boy feels this way. Well, and I'm sure there's that element too of Andy sees that happening to Justin and Andy's the one who knows Justin better than anyone else in this story. Exactly. And he may, well, this is an inference on my part. He may be thinking, when is my head on that block? When is the exact same thing going to happen to me? Because they've put me up so much higher than I deserve to be. And am I bound to the same fate? I think that's, uh, these are all things he, the man has to have been thinking about. We know Andy is not a daft man. We know, like, he's been trying to get to the bottom of this whole thing from the get-go. He's, but he's been distracted with all of this, all of the stuff that has previously happened. I mean, his explosion here just goes to show you that he really hasn't managed to process all this. Heartbreaking. You hate to see it. Indeed. This is where um, Melissa shoots back, though. She asks him, okay, well, if Justin loved his leader so much, right, if he's like so loyal to the Fed sons and all that, why does he talk so much trash about him? He's toxic. Your boy's toxic. He's out there like, like she's like, what's up, though? Like, like, if that's true, why is he acting like this? And this is where Andy just stands up. He just like gets out of his chair, right? Because she asked him, you know, if there was ever any, any, any love in him for his prince, it has long since died. Andrew stood abruptly. If it died, Miss Barker, it died on a political altar. I hope that no one, be they Archon or Bandit King, believes <laughs> that they have the right to do that to another human. He bowed his head to the Maulers. If you will excuse me, in chapter. <laughs> Dang, he just leaves. He gets so mad. He's just like, I got to go. And that's the point where he wanted to break through to Melissa and say, I'm not talking to Joanna right now. I'm talking to you because that's he, pretty. Clear. Yeah, he yeah. could have said Prince or Bandit King, but specifically saying Archon, he's saying you better learn this lesson because you don't want to have this fall into your lap in the future. You don't have the right to do that to somebody. And Andrew's right here, like legitimately, like. If it died, it did die on the political altar. It's these political machinations that has caused Zhang to break his loyalty to the Federated Sons. Yeah. And like I said, him him pushing that through is an important lesson for her to understand is you could have the most loyal person. And if you use them in that game, they might become just as much of an enemy as Justin appears to be to Hans. Hans Davian did nothing wrong. <laughs> like, but I agree, Aaron. It's this. It feels like a warning. It's a real, like, this is all that remains of a good man speech. And if you're not careful, you'll do this to someone. And uh, that's it. That's the end of the chapter. I can just imagine that uh, Eric and his wife are sitting there like, oh, well, <laughs> maybe we didn't handle that one the best. <laughs> I think they got an exciting show. I'm sure that uh, it's the most exciting thing that happened to this couple the entire trip so far. Well, and this is something, too, as I read this chapter. 
I was able to envision the movie or show scene that we talk about all the time where you have this very elegant Mm -hmm. setup. Everybody is eating. It's probably a big packed room and everybody is eyeing their table as the captain warned how exciting it is for the travelers to be able to see a celebrity in the dining area. And he's the one that's the biggest name on the boat right now. So when he makes this scene, I can imagine that this whole dining room is quiet and you hear like the chair scoot back. You hear the rattling of the utensils hitting the dishware as he's making this big statement to those he's dining with. And I assume, you know, at that point he bows out and leaves. And I could imagine that it's just this very like almost overwhelmingly silent scene as you just hear him like stepping out. So absolutely. That's what I got to see the whole time I was reading it. A fine vintage indeed. Also, I have to say, remember Eric Mahler, by the way, and Hilda. Don't forget about Eric and Hilda. But yeah, I love this scene. It starts out so nice and it ends on such a bummer. And it is, you're like, oh man, that's tough. But yeah, I do agree. You d- I, I definitely, you see where Andy's coming from. You get it. You're like, this has, this, this sucks for him. The whole thing sucks for Andy. It breaks my heart. And he clearly needed to get this out. It's unfortunate that this was the way it came out. Um, but nonetheless, I imagine, despite the embarrassment, our boy is feeling a little relief. We'll have to leave this troubled friendship and travel to a different one in the next chapter. Chapter 38. We open with a scene of Sen Shang slipping into Grey Noten's office. Remember, he came here to meet him because Grey was going to sell him that passenger list. We open with the shot of uh, Sen is kind of skulking around that dusty old storeroom, trying to be like, oh, where's supposed to meet Grey here? Where's he at? And he makes it to the back, the little door where his little office is, and he looks in. Because he's like, oh, this is kind of suspicious. What's going on? It's so quiet. And he sees Gray sitting at his desk with his feet up and his head resting on his chin. They go, like, oh, okay, he must be taking a little nap. Shang walks over and uh, checks for a pulse. Gray Noten is dead. His neck has been broken. That's no nap. That's a big sleep. That's a big sleep. <laughs> hard blow. Well placed, he says. He's like, oh, hard blow. Well placed. Very professional. Immediately, he slips behind him and he pulls, you see, he pulls this old trophy down off of Grey Noten's shelf and he looks behind it and he's like, dang, somebody already cut into the wall safe. Like, wow, he knew exactly where that wall safe was, though. I don't think, Hmm. I don't think Grey showed him where that is. I think maybe he did done a little reconnaissance of his own. Some midnight reconnoitering. And we see Shang looks down at Noten's body. He just thinks to himself what did you do gray what did you do to set him off hmm? and he thinks well now i must learn the answer and if necessary avenge you i guess <laughs> this is weird right this this it has like a weird feeling to it like shang's almost a friend but not really but in here it's kind of like there's a closeness they've probably never actually shared yeah he, I think he he realizes now. He's like, oh, that's kind of sad. You know, yeah. Did I like the guy? I don't know. 
I took it when I read it that Stackpole reminds you in this segment that Shang is uh, Mas Drava. And so yeah. I, I kind of felt after I was reading this, like he's been doing just as much intelligence on Noten as Noten has been doing on everyone else. And so maybe it's that one-sided closeness that he's like, I know yeah. everything about this man. And it's almost a shame that he's dead because he could have been really useful. And by losing yeah. something that useful, it's hurting me. Something close very... to an emotion from him. I agree. That's that's that that's what I'm trying to say though, actually, Aaron. I agree. It is this almost an emotional connection to Gray Noten's death. I thought it was well written because of that. I like that implication there. So this does answer our questions though. There Justin killed him, by the way. Like immediately after that last scene, and they're like, all right, we're just gonna post up and just hang out and be buds, wait for Shang. And then apparently Justin was like, no, and then murdered him immediately and took all of his stuff. And okay, that answers all of our questions. Justin was not chill with it at all. No, he did him in like that Vindicator pilot at the beginning of the book. Oh, yeah, he did. You mean, um, Fatang? Yes. Yeah. Fatang. Fatang. It's kind of sad, though. We, did, we don't even see. I did like this, though, where he kind of creeps in and he's like, oh, is he sleeping? No, he's dead. It's over. Gray Noten is done. That's it. Gray Noten. That's it. If this is your first time reading this, I'm sure you will find this really sudden. I know I did. You're just like, wait, that's it? I know I did. Like, that threw me through the biggest loop out of all these books that we've been reading. This scene in particular caught me so off guard. I wasn't ready for it. And in fact, the first time reading it, flat out like denied that it had happened. Because I was like, there's no way. I was following it with, I would say, more of a established universe series rule set when we got here that Grey Noten's dead. And I was like, well, but there's supposed to be a legend killer fight. There's supposed to be a square off between Justin and this guy. This is a big scene. And for it to happen off camera is bizarre. It's suspicious. It's suspicious. It should be suspicious. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing I could never let go is that it is. And Stackpole in particular, as I was reading it, I was like, Stackpole doesn't leave out the juicy stuff. He doesn't leave no. out important scenes. So, And he's put so much work into yeah. this guy. Gray Noten has been with us since the beginning, almost. Yeah. And for it to happen right here in the middle of the book? Like, we're, we're wrapping up part two in this episode. We still have a whole nother part to go. We still have a lot of storylines to cover. But I was just absolutely shocked about it it's over yeah unbelievable it's over however the chapter is not because we then cut to justin is watching from a shadowy doorway across the street he's we we see from his perspective we watch shang like come out and get in his car drive off justin's like whoo he didn't see me and then we see justin has that lockbox that he stole from the safe we see he just smashes it open with his metal hand. Just smashes this thing, like breaks it open. We see inside, of course, we've got a stack of crisp sea bills, okay? Various traveling papers. It says we got uh, like papers on a half dozen individuals who all share Gray's uh, description 
picture and thumbprint. It's like, what are the chances? You think he has like a bunch of twin brothers or (laughs) how cool is this? It's like, wow, it's like they all look just like Gray. Weird. What a strange coincidence that is. (laughs) So also there are a couple of books with names, you know, some black books, names and addresses, a record of business transactions. You know, it's Gray's strong box. He's got, and obviously we see here he has all these aliases, right? I feel like he has one for like every, or at least as many as he could get. But I feel like he has one he could like get into Merrick space. He could probably get into Davian space. He's got various identities. Of course he does. He's Gray Noten. Or he was. He was. <laughs> now he's, uh... He, now he's Noten more. Yeah, he's Noten more. He's Gray Bloatin'. <laughs> So, yeah, Justin, he takes everything out. He throws the box in the trash. Like, he just chucks it behind him. And he opens that folder again, right, with all the with the passenger list. And he's, like, reading it. And you see he smiles at the sight of Andrew Redburn's name. And then he immediately activates the fire capsule and burns the folder. The, the files are destroyed. The chapter ends with Justin thinking to himself, For your faith in me, Andrew, I deny this file to the Maskrovka. It is all I can do. But now you're on your own. Good luck, my friend. Yes. So there it is. Yes. We see that whatever Justin's doing, whatever Justin's endgame here, he really didn't betray his friend Andy Redmond. Not Andy. <laughs> it's touching. When he saw Andy's name on that list, that's what happened. He saw Andy's name on that list and he was like, I have to kill Grey Noten right now. <laughs> yeah. Because I cannot let this fall into Sen Shing's hands. Just a... Uh, before we get into discussion any further into this chapter and what happens here, I do want to point out a little, we get a little nugget of information about a, uh, another car model, a uh, Fiji model air car, you know, nothing notable. Just, uh, I thought it was, it's cool. We got another, we got the typhoon and we got the, uh, the Fiji and the hurricane and the hurricane. That's right. I just love this. Justin, he, he he never forgot about Andy either. I like that these two chapters are back to back. You got- Me too. You, know, you got Andy sticking up for Justin, and then you get Justin sticking up for Andy. I also like that like you're asking this question while you're reading, what's this about? What's this about? Why did he kill Gray Newton now? Why didn't he wait? Like, Why was now the time? And then you get your answer at the end. I mean, it's not the whole answer, but it's like, oh- this is what it was about. It was about his boy, Andy. It rules. It's about Andy, man. It is such an insane chapter to be this short. Like, Stackpole <laughs> knows what he's doing to you when you read this. It's true. As you're glancing through it, it's like two pages. And he knows he's hitting you with the sucker punch. He wants to just yeah. completely throw everything back up in the air. And I think it's very successful at doing that. Mission accomplished. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's all I really have to say. That's it. It's a tight one. So cool. Oh, but now we got Sin Shane like trying to hunt down Justin. Whole situation here going this on. This is unfortunate. Yeah. That's not exactly the man I'd want coming after me either. No, absolutely not. No, especially with what I assume is Justin's limited knowledge on the man. We don't know how much Gray Noten disclosed about Shang to Justin. Indeed. And he seems like after this scene, you just get a very different side of Shang than we've seen previously, which is very effective. And he doesn't seem like a person who's wasting time or incompetent as some of the other people we've seen around him. So Justin, from what it appears at this point, is out of one source of danger, 
but he's hopped right back into another one. So it seems. I love it. Yeah, that concludes, I guess, that kind of story arc, just in terms of Justin's rivalry with Grey Noden. It is so immediate, right? You feel like there's this whole arc, and he's like, come on in, be my partner, and they're coming closer. And you're like, yeah, dude, we're building up to something. And then it's like, no, he's dead. He killed him. It's over. You're like, dang, that's pretty good, though. You're right. It is. It's a Carpet really good gut pulled. punch. Really good gut punch here. And uh, yeah, it's even, it's like, it's so short, too. He doesn't spend any time. He's like, shows up. He's dead. Justin's there. The file. It's all for you, Andy. It makes you wonder where we're going to go next. Yeah. It also shows that Andy's faith in Justin, it wasn't misplaced, right? Justin's- uh, It was well-placed. Yeah, Justin's, he never forgot Andy either. You know, just two bros separated by so many light years, but- Still homies. Still homies. Absolutely. And with that, Justin has given Andy a second chance. And we'll have to see what he does with that in the next chapter. Chapter 39. We open with Andy knocking on Melissa's door, Joanna's <laughs> door. And I love, she opens it and sees him and immediately tries to close it again. And you feel like he's like, hey, hey, like sticks his hand in like, wait, stop. <laughs> he says, he's like, I'm here. I'm here to apologize. A truce. A truce. He has a hatchet he wishes yeah. to uh, dig a hole yeah. and bury. Yeah. <laughs> she does let him come in though. She's like, fine, fine. Come on in. And this is where we get the scene. Andy comes in and he apologizes for you know any embarrassment he caused. He says he t- he tells her he's already apologized to the Mahler family. Of course, does she tells him that she's glad to see that he at least has some manners left, Tenant. <laughs> oh A my fine vintage indeed. God, this burn though. She says I assume that Federated Sons officers. Do not become irredeemably insolent until they reach their captaincy. <laughs> Andy doesn't like the suggestion that he'll never reach his captaincy. <laughs> it's the, the, for his first thought. He's like, hey, I want to be a captain one day. And here comes the spaghetti. Yeah. <laughs> he gets flustered. He does. But Melissa's right, though. She asked him, how did he expect her to react when he was like lecturing her? on how a ruler should deal with subjects and about how she tells him you leveraged the fact that I'm under a false identity, that I couldn't defend myself. You leveraged that to like attack me. And uh, yeah, she does resent it. She's like, that sucked. That was mean. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't chill with it, Andy. I'm not going to lie to you. And uh, Andy, though, to his credit, he cools down. He cools down. He tells her, look, you're right. Okay. You're right. I was out of line. I love this. This is where he just like sits down. At this point, there's like a couch and he, he, he just like sits down. He just like deflates and he just tells her, he says, she just doesn't know how it feels. And we get this sad puppy dog Andy version. He tells Melissa that he revered Justin, right? He loved having him as a commanding officer. He worked so hard to break through the prejudice that the cadets had. He tells her that even when Justin discharged Capet, I defended him. He even starts like tearing up a little bit. It's so sad. He's, he's going on. He's telling her about the battle that day. When the Capellans ambushed us, I didn't know what to do. And then Justin gave me command. I didn't want to let him down. He did a good job, though. 
He he did. He he got his men out of a nasty situation, but he tells her that when he saw the ruins of Justin's Valkyrie, he just knew right then and there that everything would be different. I just had this feeling that some bad was going to happen. He tells her, though, that he watched that video. He watched that interview of uh, Justin after the fight with Billy Wolfson. He heard his whole thing about how he denounces Hans Davian. He says, you know, he couldn't believe it, but now he thinks he understands it all better. Well, I've been thinking about it, and uh, I'm sorry. I wonder if I ever knew Justin at all. Really? It's this whole thing. He just comes in here and just starts uh, pouring his heart out. Well, he, it seems like he's finally... He hasn't, who has he talked to this about? You know, if we recall, he tries to hit Sortek with this right after the trial. And Sortek kind of gives him the, like... Yeah, you're right, bud. Justin got a raw deal. But Andy doesn't really get solace there. Sortek just kind of like pats him on the back and is like, they're there. And so here, post-outburst, now he's getting it out. And Melissa clearly reacts to this sincerity. And Melissa says here, she gives him a line. She tells him that people change. I just hope that it doesn't always have to be for the worse. And he tells her that he doesn't understand. What do you mean by that? And this is where Melissa stands up, right? Because they were kind of sitting next to each other on the couch having this heart to heart. We get this Melissa stands up and she stands in the middle of the room, like wraps her arms around herself. She tells him about how growing up, as she did, she came to see ruling others as a game, right? Being raised as this princess in a royal court, she learned as a child that she could get away with anything. She learned that if she couldn't charm someone, she could just terrorize them. She could win them with smiles or she could take with demand. She's a, a, a bit of a brat is kind of what she's saying. She's, I, I don't understand the way I was brought up. I'm the princess. There are some things you can't be taught. She learned that the Archon designate always wins. Sometimes the tactics must be brutal. Andrew responds with, you must have outgrown that though. Yeah, exactly. He's like, okay. She asks him, though, has she? Have I outgrown it? I don't know. She explains that on like an intellectual level, I understand better what it means to be a leader, I guess, but... She's still fearful of that child, though. Yes. Within her. Yes. Right? Exactly. She's like, look, yes, I have lessons on... Yeah, I have all this power, but all my lessons and how to wield it have been purely academic, just theoretical. Really, I don't have any experience, and th there's there's really no good way to teach proper use of power, right? It's not a, you can't just read a book about it. It doesn't work like that. And this echoes the scene we just had in her cabin not so long ago, right? Where she has this feel, this like urge to feel that she needs to like earn her position, that being down here in the uh, metaphorical mud is going to lessen the pain she feels in what is entitled to her. She wants to grow. And this isn't the first time. Right. It's clear that she's aware that she has a long way to go, right? But she is aware of it. Oh, this is where she presents Andy with that scenario, right? They do a little thought experiment. She asks him that, okay, say a mech warrior in your command was damaged, but there was no time to save him without endangering the rest of your command, right? You can't turn back the enemies right on you. 
you could try to save him, but you would probably incur some pretty serious losses. You know, what do you do? It's the classic train switch scenario. Yeah. If that's what it boils down to anyway. Do you save more or the one? It's a classic philosophical debate. Well, and to Melissa's credit here, she finds a way to cut through the miscommunication that's happening. They're both talking about two very different worlds. And yes. one's learned through experience. And as she's trying to break through is that one's learned purely in theory. And so to put it into a relevant combat scenario, she's meeting Andy in his world to discuss hers. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's a really insightful way to approach it. That's kind of the common ground here is they kind of both kind of nod along and agree the greatest good for the greatest number. But my favorite part here is this next little bit. We get this little statement from Melissa. Just as I came to apologize for what you had said, I too must apologize. You correctly protested against the pain that your friend suffered and I tried to defend his suffering as a necessary action. Neither of us can alleviate his anguish, and we feel the guilt of that, she smiled sheepishly. If I thought a pardon would make him whole again, I would ask the prince to do it. Which I think is really big of her, considering the chapter before last. I agree. And when I was reading it, I was thinking, this may have been... Melissa's first encounter on a personal level of the ramifications of politics and having that highlight and the immediate understanding of that. Well, seeing the weight, the burden, I mean, a Andy's on this couch just pouring his little heart out. Yeah. And uh, she's seeing the repercussions of what he's gone through. And I'm sure she's been around these warrior types her whole life. I doubt that they've shown her this intimate side before. The political court is going to be a lot of people pretending that they feel nothing and that they're above it all. So I think you might be right, Aaron. This might really be her first, like, real in touch with the genuine humanity of this situation, of this burden, and of her own power. And what wielding these politics can come to bear on the man. And, oh, I did like that. She says, if I thought a pardon would help Prince to do it, which implies that she knows that it wouldn't. Which is funny because we just saw... Exactly. Like Hans and Quintus. Hans was like, I should pardon him. And Quintus is like, that's not going to work, dude. Come <laughs> on. Even Melissa knows it. He's too far gone. And the chapter ends with Andy's just sitting there thinking about it. He takes a moment. He And he kind of reflects on everything that's happened since then. You, you get the, the feeling he just kind of sits there for a minute, just like, oh man, a whole bunch of stuff has happened. And he looks up at her and he says, I appreciate that, your highness, but after seeing that tape, I fear that Justin is now lost to us forever. And so, in juxtaposition to the chapter we just had with Zhang, we see that sadly here, Andrew Redburn finally has lost faith. He's not given up on him, though. You don't think so? I hope not. <laughs> Me too. This is a low point, though. Right after of defending Justin so passionately, this is the lowest he's gotten as far as thinking about Justin so far. He's actually finally kind of processing, and he's like, man, maybe 
He's not my boy anymore. Maybe he is different. I mean, he's having to deal with getting slapped with all of this information that says to the contrary of his previous beliefs. Everything going on in Solaris. It's heavy. This chapter's heavy. He's having a crisis. Well, and I think one of the biggest indications of how heavy this is for both of them and the how important it is for them both to talk about it is how much this puts everything they're doing at risk just to have this conversation. Andy is now walking away from the luxury side of the vessel, <laughs> heading down to the common rooms and knocking on the door of, to a lot of people, would be a stranger, somebody they just had an interaction at dinner with. And so in this world, which I'm sure before they left, Simon gave them the rundown of how important the screen of Andy is to this whole operation. It's having to be lifted here for them both to have this conversation together. They're both being seen in the same place. That's a very good point. Dang, that's true. So sad. Poor Andy. You really do feel for Andy through all of this. Stackpole doesn't really leave you a choice otherwise. Because Justin's made some of his decisions. Justin's gone down his path through this. But Andy hasn't really had a choice in all of the events that's transpired. And as Brent, you were talking earlier, as soon as he goes through that incredibly difficult time, he's immediately put right back into the machine and forced to go along with it. He's wisp away, right? Like, to foreign lands, to a dropship, to meeting... Like a foreign rulers in a yeah, court. It's true. All he did was save some stingers. And now he's like locked in a room with the Archon designate. Yep. You know, how, and, how uh, did we get here? I would even argue that there's some intimacy here that's that's a little dangerous too. And they had this whole conversation in Melissa's trashy little room for poor people. <laughs> She hates so much. Don't you know this wasn't in Andy's nice room. This was in her little uh right. the pullout, the manual pullout. The shared bathroom. Yeah, with the shared <laughs> bathroom. You know, every one day I feel like you know, the adjoining room can hear their whole conversation. What's going on in <laughs> yeah. there? What is that? Is that Andrew Redburn? <laughs> it's clear that this scene has a lot of weight. I'm excited to uh talk about the consequences of this as we go forward. And we'll have to see you. What Stackpole has in store for that, we get to part three next week as we continue on Warrior on Guard. This was another episode of Of Mechs and Men. I am Kanan Hill, and I was joined by my two good friends, Brent and Aaron. We would like to thank the author, Michael A. Stackpole, and all the other writers and artists who work so hard to keep Battletech alive. We would like to thank, as always, Catalyst Game Labs for being such generous stewards of the property, we have an email, advice at heat.management. If you have any questions, complaints, corrections, please, advice at heat.management. We're also on social media, Instagram, Twitter, at of and Men. And I want to take a moment to shout out a huge thank you to one of our community members, Travis, who has been running the Of Mechs and Memes channel on Twitter, oh. where we have seen so many amazing meme posts <laughs> about the subjects that we're covering. Yes, Travis has been working hard creating all these memes. It's awesome. He's just churning them out. It's wild. 
They're great. So if you haven't already, head over to Twitter. You can find it at of mechs and memes. He's also been posting them in our booth at the uh, Valhalla Discord channel, which is another place you can uh, find us hanging out. Absolutely. I've also seen them in the wild on the Battletech subreddit as well. He's killing it. Yeah, it's amazing. They're so funny. They're so funny. Thank you very much, Travis, for all of your hard work. Oh, and of course, thanks to everyone else, the listeners. We always thank the listeners. Oh, and please, if you can, leave a review on your uh, favorite podcast app. We love those. Every little bit helps. We'll be back next week to continue our discussion of Warrior On Guard by Michael A. Stackpole. Until then. Say la. Till next time.